Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today we kind of got a little bit off track of our normal corn soybean talk, which is good. Yeah, for sure. I thought it was really great to talk about livestock today, to talk about beef production specifically. I thought we had a, a great conversation. Yep. Today's guest was Dr. Sarah Klopatik, or Dr. K for short. She's also known as the Beef Babe on Twitter. And we had a great conversation about her and some of her research at UC Davis, where she researches a lot about beef production, specifically the delineation between grass-fed versus grain-fed beef. Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot more to that story. And, and she has this great quote, myopia is the death of sustainability. And so, for instance, we know that greenhouse gas emissions are created by beef production, by livestock production. In fact, she talks about livestock produces about 5% of the greenhouse gas emissions in this country. But really, it's important to look at the big picture. And that's really, you know, we'll let her describe her quote there, but not to be narrow minded and focused on one thing. We really need to always look at the big picture. Absolutely. So it was a great conversation with Dr. K. Without further ado, let's get right into the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. K. To kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to today? Absolutely. So my background is kind of an unusual story, but I was uh, born in and raised by scientists. Uh, my, my father was a global systems ecologist. My mother was a microbiologist, biogeochemist easy to say. And I was raised doing field work with them. They literally built a lean-to in the desert and I was just running around in diapers in this lean-to. Um, and uh, people think desert, they think scorpions and rattlesnakes and and absolutely I was exposed to all of that. I remember, remember one time my, my dad was like, now watch out for rattlesnakes. I was five years old and I literally go, that one? And I pointed and there was like a rattlesnake within two feet of me. And my dad just like screams. He grabs me, throws me over the barbed wire fence. My mom catches me. My dad grabs a shovel and just flings the snake. And so I, I thought that was just normal childhood. And so I went to the schools and I asked all the other kids how the field was. And the teachers were like, what is wrong with this child? What is the field? So it wasn't a great leap to continue in the sciences, but what was unusual, um, I would say it was by happenstance luck uh, to get into agriculture, but and I'm sure you guys hear the story quite often of, well, there was no ag in my school. You know, there's a reason why mm -hmm. many of our consumers don't know what's happening is because they're not exposed to it. So I was raised in a high school with 3000 kids uh, I don't think there was a pair of, you know, Lou Casey's for, <laughs> for 10 miles, you know, no boots. There's no 4-H at our school, no FFA. Uh, and so I had the, you know, the lovely rattlesnake uh, growing up experiences, but I didn't, you know, the cows that I was playing with were just the cow patties. I didn't know about agriculture and the, our reading material my junior year of high school. Get this. This is how we learned about ag. We had the jungle by Upton Sinclair. Ooh. Right. 1920s, where you're literally seeing, you know, that's writing about having like limbs being the meat supply. It was it was not, gruesome, not flattering, <laughs> not flattering. But, you know, it was true. It was accurate. And, you know, it helped create the FDA. So it was an important book. But so that was kind of their beginning of, you know, ad. And then there here it is now was Fast Food Nations. And that was our our, our bookends for ag. And wow. I. And I 
was like, now I'm confused. Like, what is ag? What is happening? And I'm very fortunate to have my nerdy scientist parents that they're like, don't take, you know, live trap point blank. See beyond the words, see the science and ask why, what is happening? And so that's exactly what I did. I strolled up to the University of Arizona, go, I want to be in livestock production. What's happening? And then, really? uh, wow. yeah, a couple months after that, you know, I'm, I'm AIing cows and I'm, I'm working, you know, uh, steers in the shoe and I'm doing all of these things and, and that's the history of it. And then I went and got my master's at Texas A&M, my, my beef boot camp, um, for sure. And then I finished at the University of California, Davis, and I focused on uh, beef sustainability and livestock systems. So now I'm a, I'm a system scientist and a sustainability scientist working for UC Davis. That's really a cool story. And it's kind of a little bit of a lesson out there, I would say, for the students or young people that might be listening. Just because you're not exposed to something in high school or before doesn't mean it can't become something that can be your career. Absolutely not. I mean, I see some, you know, I've had some fantastic, fantastic students who are actually now working in the beef industry and they got their start on the UC Davis feedlot or they got their start in my lab and they just showed up. And that's that's really what you have to do. Just have the, the passion and have the drive and show up and um, you can fall in love like I did with with agriculture and science and uh it doesn't matter if you were raised in science, if you were raised on a ranch, or if, you know, you've never left a, a four block apartment radius, you know, everybody can be a part of this picture and every student should have the opportunity to. That's kind of been something that's been almost an overarching theme of, as, as we've done these podcasts over the last few years. It really seems like agriculture today is a lot different than even 20 years ago, or maybe even less, wherein there's all kinds of college majors. If you're an IT person type person, if you're interested in computer programming and you have this side interest in agriculture, and maybe you've never been on a farm, you've never been out of the city maybe, but there are opportunities out there that marry those two interests. And, and it's really an exciting time, I think, for right. students. Everybody eat. Yeah. <laughs> and in some way, you know, we always say there's the 2% that's in ag, but aren't we all should be in ag. We all eat. So we should all, you know, where does our food come? How, where is, how does this work? You know, and, um, and I'm seeing more, and especially in the younger generation, more and more interest. Um, and kind of like me, they just, they just show up. They're like, well, what are you doing? What's a feedlot? What is it? What's a shoot? You know, and uh, it's really exciting to see. And I, there's a lot of opportunities for students and it's, it's much greater than veterinary medicine. That's a great field. Um, but there's so much more in agriculture and animal agriculture that goes beyond that. Absolutely. So Dr. K, I, I first found you on Twitter. Uh, you had an awesome quote, myopia is the death of sustainability. Would you mind talking a little bit about that and how it fits with some of your research? Yeah, that was when uh, Dr. K was on a, a little bit of a science tirade. Um, so that is, my, <laughs> that is my quote. I will reiterate it. Myopia is the death of sustainability. So what does that mean? The problem is that I see when we focus on sustainability, we may only focus on one aspect, one angle, one pillar. And so an example of that would be the carbon footprint. Is the carbon footprint 
important? Absolutely. But what happens if we only focus on one footprint? Well, that's called myopia. That's having blinders on. It's only focus on one thing. And so when you say, let's eliminate all livestock production in the world because of the carbon footprint, you're looking at a, a very complex, very wicked problem. And by only viewing that carbon footprint, you're missing everything else. And that is the death of sustainability. Sustainability needs to include the water footprints, the, the socioeconomic issues, women's issues, um, you know, international trade, economics, family values, and it goes on and on and on. And that's what sustainability is. It is this complex system. And the wicked problem is climate change, you know, is having less rainfall, it's having all these issues. But the elimination approach or the only focusing on the carbon footprint approach, that's the problem, is that myopic viewpoint. We will never be able to be a sustainable, functional society if we're only looking at one footprint. So that's why I was discussing that. And it could be either any footprint. We just carbon or you're just water or you're just economics, you're going to miss the big picture. Yeah, that, that's really a problem in today's society without getting out of soapbox is Everybody wants to condense everything down to kind of a pithy saying or whatever, you know, or, or a, a one size fits all approach or solution. Oh, cows are emitting greenhouse gases. Okay, let's get rid of the cows then, let's, you know, but not looking at the big picture, exactly what you're talking about. And I think that's a really interesting quote. And even sustainability, the word sustainability, I mean, you kind of talked about it, but what does that mean? What does sustainability mean? It means different things to different people, right? To the individual farmer or rancher on their farm, it means being able to pass on the farm to their own next generation. To right. someone else, it maybe means, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And those those goals can be hand in hand, but there's trade-offs a lot of times. Right. And if we want to actually, you know, if we are focusing on carbon footprints, so the United States uh, livestock production uh, for the beef and well, all cattle, beef and dairy, they're about 4% of the, the greenhouse gas footprint for the United States. And all livestock are a little bit closer to, to 5%. But a paper that came out said, okay, so what if we did that? What if we eliminated beef? And although that it's 2.5 or excuse me, 5% of the footprint, it would only reduce emissions by 2.5%. And the problem is that if we eliminated this, this not only food source would be eliminating a source of manure of nitrogen, phosphorus, especially, you know, look at today's climate with how expensive fertilizer is. And now it's like manure is this precious commodity. And it, so it's, it's much, it's much greater than the greenhouse gases. And then they looked at a nutritional issue. Yes, there'll be, be adequate energy, but then there'll be other nutritional issues. And one of the issues that they're finding is that more and more women are having iron deficiencies. And actually there is less beef in the diet now than there was 10 to 20 years ago. So it's all about these balance of human, animal, planetary health. It's very simple, really. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing ever really is once you uh, start looking into it, is it? <laughs> no, it is not. Dr. K, you had mentioned that, you know, the, the greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. is about 5% come from livestock. Is that the same around the world or are there differences in different countries? There's definitely differences in different countries. And when you look at a global perspective, and this is the number that's, that's pretty commonly used is 14% of all greenhouse gases. 14% of all greenhouse gases come from livestock. 
In the U.S., when you're just focused on uh, on beef cattle, it's about 2%, dairy cattle about 2%, so all livestock in the, the U.S. Uh, is between 4 and 5%. So that's that's quite a bit different when you're comparing those two. And one might ask, well, why is there this difference? What's what's occurring? Well, for one, the energy sectors are going to be very different on a global global front compared to, to the U.S., but then also just how these systems are operating. And as we know in the U.S., we are very efficient. And so we have some of the best genetics. We have some of the most advanced nutritional programs, uh, the best management. And when you put all these together, what you actually find is that U.S. beef cattle have the lowest carbon footprint per pound of beef than anywhere else in the world. And that is because of the efficiency and the management of our system. Wow. And I, I don't want to put the part ahead of the horse here because we want to ask you about your recent research that's just published. But the main point of your article is you're comparing the differences in the beef from grass-fed and grain-fed cattle in different systems. Is there a difference in greenhouse gas emissions from, say, conventionally grain-fed beef that it takes, uh, you, you tell me, 18 months or whatever to produce compared to grass-fed where it takes... 24 months or more, and, and maybe my numbers are off, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there a difference in emissions based on that then? Yes, there are. So let me just tell the audience, because there might be some confusion. Why do cattle produce methane? Like we always talk about it, like they're producing methane, but why? So let's really quickly, what makes ruminants, so that includes cattle, sheep, goats, what makes them awesome, in my opinion, is that they're able to convert this low quality forage, right? They're able to go onto pasture and they're able to produce high quality meat, milk, and fiber. But how do they do this? How, because you know, I can I could send my dog or my cat out there and it, it can't do that. Why, <laughs> well, why can't I feed my, my, my dog for free? Um, and the reason for that is because they have a relationship uh, the cows with the bugs in their rumen. So these are microorganisms, I call them bugs, and they have this amazing relationship to where they can act. You're not feeding the cow itself, you're feeding the bugs in the rumen. And, and so those bugs, their cellulitic bacteria and other organisms, they're able to say, uh, well, they're not speaking, but they're able to take that cellulose and they're able to degrade that into an energy source for the cow. So that's the, the symbiotic, symbiotic relationship. But they work hand in hand with organisms called methanogens. So these little methane bugs. So there's little cellulose bugs. There's little methane bugs. And they're working together. So every time you're degrading cellulose, you're producing methane. They evolve together. So that's why that you're producing this, this gas, this greenhouse gas. Um, and this is the same for, for wild ruminants, for bison, elk, deer, they're producing methane. And that is, by, that is the byproduct, that is the waste product of being able to convert that low quality forage. Now, when you're comparing grass-fed and grain-fed systems, uh, grass-fed animals, they're going to be take, they're gonna, it takes longer to produce. And so they're emitting methane for a longer period of time and also they have more cellulose in their system than an animal say in, in the feedlot. So they're actually producing more methane uh, per head. And so what I looked at though is, you know, as I said, myopia is a depth of sustainability. So 
going into that project, we know methane's important, greenhouse gases are important, but what about water? What about energy? What about human health? Which one, which one has a more favorable uh, fatty acid profile? And then of course, animal performance and economics, because at the end of the day, how can you do a sustainability paper where it would not even be affordable for a rancher to produce a product? <laughs> so by looking at all of these systems, and I'm gonna use the, the kind of four letter word here, we had trade-offs. We had trade-offs in the systems and we showed that the grain-fed beef, as you alluded to earlier, it did have a lower carbon footprint per kilogram of beef. And that was, again, it produced less methane over time and it had a much higher harvest weight than the grass-fed systems. Now, does that mean that that one system is more sustainable than the other? No, there were no system absolutes. And you also have to go into sustainability of scale. Can, can a producer that has adequate rain, that has enough pasture, that has good soil health, has an outlet to sell his beef and is producing 100% grass-fed beef? Is he not sustainable? No, you can't say that. But can you say that, can we convert all grain-fed production to all grass-fed production, that's not necessarily sustainable either because we'd only be producing 29% of the current beef production. Um, and that's for, based on a Harvard study. So we're seeing that- So why is that? Could you, could you go into that just a little bit more? Why, why would we be able to produce 29% less if we went to 100% grass-fed? Some of the reasons for that are because grass-fed animals take longer and they require more space. Every time you have a grass-fed steer, you're displacing a cow-calf pair. And so you need to have you need to have more land to produce that amount of beef. And I'm someone that eats grass-fed and grain-fed beef. I eat all of the beef. And then some of the issues are your gains are going to be slower. You're not going to be able to gain the same amount of weight as you are in a feedlot system. Um, and just to compare it, just in my study, you know, my steers were gaining 4-4 a day. I was very proud of my ration. Um, I, <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is a feedlot girl right there nerding out. I gained 4-4 a day, but my grass-fed animals, you know, they were gaining well under three pounds a day. And so it took longer um, to put weight on those animals. So Dr. K, you mentioned briefly a disparity and the carbon footprint between grass versus grain finished cattle. Is there, do you have any quantitative values behind that? Like, is it a doubling of the carbon footprint or, or maybe just kind of give me an idea of scale of those differences? Of course. So again, we had four different systems and that's really um, crucial to mention is not, is that not all grass fed beef systems are the same. Uh, they vary tremendously as far as um, management compared to conventional beef that typically has a relatively similar system. And so the four systems we looked at were conventional beef where they're in the feed yard um, for about uh, 130 days and they were harvested at 18 months. We had grass fed for a full 20 months, uh, grass fed for 20 months, but then moved to a grain diet for 45 days. And then finally we had grass-fed beef for 25 months total. So when you're we're comparing these systems and looking at the, the greenhouse gas footprint or the global warming potential is what, what we use. We saw that um, the conventional beef had a footprint of 4.91, uh, which means it had a global warming potential of 4.91 uh, carbon equivalents per kilogram of beef that was produced. And now 
that 4.9 number compared to the 25 months was 8.53. So we had 4.9 to 8.53. So we really did see differences. Um, and, and just to say that this, this is a life cycle assessment, but we just looked at from, from weaning to harvest. So all of the emissions that were, were produced at that time. And then um, interestingly enough, when we're, again, our functional unit, what we're looking at is how much beef did we actually make, our kilograms of beef. And when we looked at our, our 20 months to our, our 20 months grass fed with a 45 day finish, we actually saw, although the grain fed for 45 days were older, they're 45 days older than the grass fed 20 animals, their carbon footprint uh, was smaller than the than the 20 months. So you're like, wait, how is that possible? Yeah. And it's possible because they were able to gain so much weight in the feedlot. A lot of it was compensatory gain, but they're able to gain so much weight that that actually decreased their emissions per kilogram of beef. Interesting. And, and if we're wondering like what the animals were finishing at, like what were their, their final weights? Um, and, and these are in, in kilograms, so so my apologies, but we were looking at the conventional was 632 kilograms. Uh, and then looking at the, the grass-fed 20 months, they're only at 578. So you're looking at, at animals that were finishing at 1050, I think 1,000 uh, pounds, a little over 1,000 pounds for the grass-fed 20 um, versus you know well into the 13s for the conventional. So that's why you have a big difference is, and this is really important to discuss is I look at footprints on how much beef is produced, not per head. Because if you're looking at per head, you're not actually looking at how much beef is being produced. Yeah. yeah ultimately it doesn't matter how many, how many cattle there are. It matters how much beef you get. Right. So yeah, it's important to use the right units when you're comparing different systems. Sure. Well, that's interesting. And it's, it's crazy how many, it's a multifactorial problem, right? There's so many different factors. One that maybe doesn't affect, you know, the carbon footprint, but you briefly mentioned that I'm interested in, is you mentioned favorable fatty acid profiles. Is there a consensus? Have, has there have been polling on what, what kind of beef tastes better just for my own personal interest <laughs> or is, is well, grass better than grain or are they the same? Does it matter? No, it's trade-offs. Remember, uh, no, we were, <laughs> So that's kind of two different areas. One is fatty acid profiles. And ironically, we found the same, same things uh, when comparing the different systems as far as trade-offs goes, because on the conventional side, conventional beef had a higher MUFAs. And MUFAs are monounsaturated fatty acids. It's like, what are those? Well, the FDA has recently said that these type of fatty acids, these MUFAs, are really important for heart health. And so those are good fatty acids and they're higher in grain-fed beef. But then when you're looking at grass-fed beef on the, the omega-3s um, and some of the long chain uh, omega-3s, those were, those were higher in, in the grain-fed system. So what we really had is once again, we had trade-offs. And so that's what we really show is one system superior not necessarily. And then what we also saw was that these grass-fed systems, like the grass-fed 20 to the grass-fed 25 months, they were not identical. So they had actually different fatty acid profiles. 
And so what we're really seeing is that we need more grass-fed research. We need to understand these systems. We need to see, well, how is grass-fed on the West Coast? How is it different on the East? I mean, they're getting a lot more rain. They're having you know, a lot more pasture throughout the year. So how are these systems different? How is this affecting the carbon footprint, the energy footprint, and how, how their fatty acid profiles are? And, and also on the what tastes good side, right? So we did have um, a taste panel done, both a, a professional and non-professional panel. And right now the, the results are showing that there was more favorability for the grain-fed systems. But again, if you're someone that likes grass-fed, you generally like grass-fed better. So it just depends on the consumer. There's a lot of consumers that prefer to have grass-fed. There's a lot that prefer to have grain-fed. And then there's some that eat a burger with a bunch of, you know, beautiful cheese and lettuce and all that. And they can't be different. So it just, it just depends. How, how, do, how do I become a, a professional beef taster? <laughs> I know, right? I, I think that's just my life goal. <laughs> I feel like I'm a, I'm a semi-professional already, so. <laughs> a new LinkedIn title. I love it. <laughs> so I'm a little disappointed here. I, I, I thought we were going to come in and we were going to have an expert opinion here. We we're going to say... Dr. K says this kind of beef is better, but it sounds like there's a lot of factors to consider and we probably just barely scratch the surface. And it's really hard to say one is superior to the other is what you're kind of getting down to. Yes, because there's so many factors. It's like, are you looking at energy? Well, the grain fed has a lower energy footprint. Are you looking at water? Well, the system that used irrigated pasture the longest has the largest water footprint. Um, and you know, you just go on and on. and. And I think that's really important. It's okay to say that one system isn't absolutely better. And I think that's really important from a policy perspective, you know, and it goes beyond just grain fed and grass fed. It goes beyond, you know, pork versus beef or, you know, beef versus vegetables and so on and so forth. It's important that we have balance and balance in our research and trade-offs and trade-offs in our food systems and what we're, you know, Putting on, uh, you know, I know there's there's vegan Fridays going on in the public schools in New York, and you know I can understand that we want to lower the carbon footprint, but it's really important to have balance. If you're going to have a burger, have the lettuce and the salad with it. Have the balanced nutrition. And, you know, it's it's not having steak, you know, five times a day. But you know, what's wrong with having steak? you know, once, once a week and having that burger once, you know, a few times a week. So that's, that's the problem I'm seeing is there's a lack of balance. Um, and people just really want the simple answer and they want the answer to make them feel good really quickly. And as we know, science and food isn't simple and it deserves the attention to detail and it doesn't deserve that quick fix because there isn't a quick fix. So if I put a slice of lettuce on my cheeseburger, I can call it a salad, right? That's what I. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, I, I don't put the lettuce on the burger. I'm 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 that person that's like, don't violate my meat. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. You you mentioned the fact that people want an easy solution, and I while you've been speaking here today, I've been thinking about you know walking through the grocery store. And there's all these marketing taglines, you know, like grass fed, uh, non GMO. You know, you can I can go on and on on that, but it's just. I don't always understand the why behind that when I hear clear science and facts that you talk about from a sustainability perspective, 
you know, I'm trying to figure out what's the origin of that policy. Is that ultimately from the consumer because they're looking for that easy fix? Or do you think it's just a lack of knowledge at the policy makers level? Well, I remember when I was at A&M and I had this brilliant nutritionist talk to me and he told me that being in the feedlot's a game of pennies. You know, one year you might not make it, the next year you might make it. And it's the same for, you know, some of my grass-fed producers, my friends, you know, they're one year they can do well and then the next year they're in a drought. And so it's a very, it's very, very tough to produce livestock. Um, and so, and the consumers are putting more and more demands on their products and they, they have some specifications that they would like. And so, uh, I think producers are trying to, to stay competitive, um, in different areas. You know, consumers worry about animal welfare and they're worried about antibiotics. And so, uh, the producers are just trying to keep up. Um, but there's, you know, what's going to be, what's, What's happening in the industry now? Uh, well, I'll just say that you know JBS and uh, the National Beef Cattlemen's Association. Um, everyone uh, is trying to move forward with climate policy, and they're looking, including the U.S. dairies. They're looking at um, becoming climate neutral in the next uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, excuse me, uh, carbon neutral. So they're looking at how do they improve efficiencies within the system to lower the carbon footprint. And that's a holistic view of, you know, having producers and consumers, uh, feeders, everyone working together. So that's where the movement is currently going. Yeah, I think Jason and I are both in the corn soybean world and we're always trying to tell farmers to tell their stories as well. And I think there's a lot of lack of communication between the consumers and the actual farmers, I'm sure you know, you said the the cattle industry is a game of pennies. I'm sure, you know, it's hard when you're in that industry to also spend time, you know, reaching out to those consumers and sharing your story, things like that. And what are the facts that they're, you know, what do they, they need to share? It's like, you know, they've been up at three in the morning planting and then going to go milk cows and then, you know, or, you know, they're going to go herd their, their cattle in the mountaintops. Are they supposed to just like get some GPS phone and be like, (laughs) Beef cattle contribute two percent. You know, it's just you know the lines become blurry about what's a rancher's role nowadays. When they're like, I'm trying to feed my family, and I'm being attacked left and right for doing something I've been doing for five generations. And I do think it it's important to tell the story, you know, but it's what you're comfortable with and what you what you want to share. I have known more and more of my rancher friends are on social media and they're sharing their story and sharing what's happening. And I think consumers do appreciate that because again, they're, I was the consumer that had no idea how the beef system worked, how, how poultry worked, how anything in ag worked. And so now I, I have that knowledge and I also want to, to kind of share the stories about what's happening uh, in the agricultural world, because it's really hard to find information. And I said, it's hard for other scientists to sometimes find information. How do you expect a consumer, you know, who's busy at work and or a rancher that's busy at work to share this information? So it will continue to be a challenge, but I, I'm also very hopeful. I feel like there's more and more knowledge out there. There's misknowledge. I don't know. <laughs> there is, there's some good insight as well. 
Well, unfortunately, a, a report like yours, where you know you, you find that it's it's complex, it's, there's not an easy solution, is not the kind of report that's going to make the front page of the New York Times because it's not sensationalistic and it's not, you know, it doesn't sell papers. And so, uh, I, I think people have to dig a little bit deeper to find the real story because it's not. Everybody wants to consume the message in a in a real condensed package soundbite. Right. And I think it's, it is going to be a little bit of an uphill battle because that is what I do. I evaluate trade-offs. I want to look at systems holistically. I want to evaluate these trade-offs. And myopia is the death of sustainability, right? And that's the problem that I'm seeing is it's, that's on all the newspapers is that myopic viewpoint and it's sensationalism. And, and there are you know, there's sometimes really good science in there, but it doesn't really speak the full truth of the food system. And that's really frustrating. And that's why you have a lot of policies that are not holistic. They're very black and white. And it's like, well, how are we going to keep producing food and have open rangelands and, and have these balance of systems when we're just so aggressive and only want to see one perspective? So... I will do my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, ultimately, Dr. K, you sound like you're an optimist. So when we look at the future, what excites you about the future of specifically beef production or whatever, you know, something about agriculture? <laughs> something about agriculture that's positive. There's a lot of positives. Um, one is this future generation, they're interested in food. Um, and you can do something with interest. You know, you can engage with interest. If you have someone, there's a difference between not knowing and not caring. And I believe they care. And I think you can, you can work with people that care and you can um, discuss agriculture, discuss improvements in agriculture and move forward. It's, it's like human medicine, right? We're always looking for improvements. We're always looking to continue uh, to improve. And that's where agriculture is. It's not like, oh, this is how we did it. That's it. No, like look at corn and soy production over this last 40 years. Look at the improvements of yield. Look at the decrease in water. It's Things are going in a positive direction. Um, and speaking of water, that is what I'm currently working on is beef cattle's water footprint. And I remember uh, reading articles about how the greenhouse gas footprint in beef has gone down. And it's like, well, why did it go down? Well, because of improvements in efficiencies. It's like, all right. What about water? Has it changed? And over the last 30 years, I've seen that, wow, okay, beef water's footprint has actually gone down as well. So that's the, the publication I'm working on right now is to show beef cow's water footprint from today to 30 years ago and how it's decreased. And so I'm thinking, I, I do feel positive. I think it's going to be really hard. Um, it's not going to be an easy journey, but we are making great improvements in the livestock industries. Uh, we are improving our communication. Um, and I think with that, that it is going to be, it's going to be positive. Those improvements in water use, is that basically genetic improvement, the bulk of that, or is there, is there something else going on? Well, you guys are a part of that picture. Um, <laughs> so uh, beef cattle's water footprint, the, the biggest uh, aspects or the biggest components of the water footprint are irrigation. That's that's the big one. It's not actually them drinking. It's it's irrigation of irrigated pastures, and irrigation of, of corn. 
And what the improvements are is definitely genetics, um, reproductive technologies. Um, the cow-calf sector is huge. You know, they're having um, their better, better animals going through the, the feed system, but then the feeders um, have brilliant systems of how to use byproducts, you know, minimize waste, um, everything going into this to where the water footprint has been decreasing. And then of course, on the, the grower side, what's going on with corn production and how that they have been able to increase their yield with genetics and all of that, those technologies to where they're able to have more yield with less water. And so when you combine all these aspects together, you're really seeing the full system and efficiencies from every sector that ultimately uh, result in the lower water footprint, just like the greenhouse gas footprint. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you've been preaching about looking at the big picture. And I, here I am just thinking about the cows, but there's obviously more to the story, the whole production system. That's that's really interesting. And it's a really interesting point, I think, to end on. One last thing. Do you have any advice? You had a very unique background to your path to become a scientist. You talked about agriculture. Do you have any last piece of advice for maybe a student or a young person out there that would like to get into science? Do you have some suggestion for them? I, I do. And that is that there is a place for, for anyone who has a passion or a drive, there is a place for you. And it is not easy, but is absolutely worth it. And you can get, you know, a professional degree, you can go to trade school, you can go to a four-year college, there are opportunities for everyone. There is an opportunity, you know, for somebody that, you know, doesn't want to go to the college route and they want to, you know, get boots on the ground right away, um, be prepared to get a little muddy and some manure on you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're to go work at a cow-calf operation or to, to work in a corporate office. There's, there's, it's such a diverse industry. Our culture is complex. There's a lot of different things you can do. It's like they said, you know, you're, you said, there's a place for IT people. There's a place for animal scientists. There's a place for agronomists. There's a place for manufacturers, you know? So um, just continue, be driven, put in the, the hard work in the classroom. And most importantly, take what you learned in the classroom and leave it. <laughs> you know, it's very important to, if you wanna be in, in, um, in corn or soy, you know, go out there and talk to the farmers that are actually doing it every day. You know, what is their life like? What are the challenges they're facing? If you want to be, uh, if you if you love feedlots and are curious, you know, there's, you know, a lot of feeders can tell you what they're doing, what their challenges are, and you can connect the dots between what you learned in the classroom and what's happening in the real life. And that's really important. And that's what I really preach to my students. I take them out of the classroom as often as I can. <laughs> Well, that's great advice to end on, Dr. K, and we really appreciate your time here. This has been a fascinating conversation. If any of the listeners want to learn more about you or follow along with your research, there is there a good way for them to, to follow you or reach out? Uh, yes, there, there are. I'm, I've been called a bad millennial. I'm pretty new to the social media game. Um, so right now, you can, you can just find me on, on LinkedIn, and I'm sure you'll post my name. They can find it there at Sarah Klopatic, but then also um, I'm on Twitter, and it's Dr. Beef Babe, so D-R Beef Babe. 
And that's a, a homage to uh, the farm babe. The farm babe had, um, I, I loved watching her and seeing what she's doing. So um, yeah. mimicry is the best form of flattery. So I'm Dr. B. <laughs> Perfect. We'll be sure to link that in the show notes. And once again, Dr. K, we appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.